Welcome. It's great to worship with you. I'm Fred. I'm the pastor here. And I'm really excited to get into the word together. Uh, before we do that, I want to say a special welcome to our guests. Thank you for coming to check us out. We're very happy to have you here. And if there's anything that, that we can do for you uh, during your time worshiping with us, please let us know. If you have questions afterwards, we'd love to talk and, and try to answer some of those questions for you. Uh, we do have a connect card if you're visiting with us for the first time or uh, if you've maybe uh, been coming a few weeks now but haven't filled out the connect card. We would love it if you would consider doing that so that uh, we can add you to our mailing list and our email list and, and be able to be in contact with you. Um, to do that on the handout that we gave you on your way in, there's a little QR code, that funny looking picture at the bottom that says connect card. All you have to do is take a smartphone, open up the camera. And if you hover over that, it'll take you right to that website and you can fill out that connect card. If that doesn't work for you, if that's too much technology, uh, please feel free just to reach out to us and we'd love to talk. We have a couple of needs uh, coming up as we get ready to move into our new building, uh, Lord willing, for Easter Sunday, which everything is very well on track. Uh, we've had a couple of scares with contractors and stuff like that, but everything's coming together. Uh, there's a ton of work left to do, but we've got a great plan to get it all done. Um, but unbeknownst to you, that plan involves you. And so we need lots of volunteer help the next two weeks, especially as we get ready for flooring to start on the 15th. Uh, we've got a lot of painting to get done, a lot of cleaning to get done. And so if you're willing to come up and paint throughout the week or on the weekend, uh, or I mean, honestly, there's, there's drywall dust that needs cleaned up. If you can operate a rag, then we can use you. And so we'd love to have some help this week. Uh, we're going to have... Uh, I'll put out a schedule this week for painting, but for sure, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., uh, we'll be up there doing some painting. For those of you who are available during the day, would love to have you come out and help us uh, paint tomorrow at 10 a.m. And then we'll take a little break in the afternoon, let things dry and get ready for another coat and get some dinner. And tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. So if you work during the day, uh, but you can join us in the evening, come up at 6 p.m. Uh, if you're available during the day, we certainly could use your help at 10 a.m. tomorrow. And then we'll schedule some other days throughout the week. We're going to try to get in there several times this week to, to make some good progress on the painting that needs done. <clears throat> Another area that we need some help is our children's ministry. Uh, during COVID, we went down to just our uh, one class, which is like pre-K through third. It's, uh, we're just do we've been doing the best that we can with the volunteers that we have, but we really want to get back to a full children's ministry like we had before COVID, where kids birth through sixth grade uh, have age-appropriate gospel teaching on Sunday mornings while the parents worship together. And so if you're interested in serving in our children's ministry, ministry, either as a teacher or even just a helper in one of the classrooms. Uh, we're looking for folks who can potentially commit to twice a month. Uh, so we need, we need, but we need several children's ministry volunteers to get our classes back to where they were pre-COVID. And that's our goal for this spring, uh, to get our full kids ministry up and running again. So if you would like to help with that, are Matt and Erica in here? Matt, okay, there's Matt. So if you turn around to the back, that's Matt Adams. Uh, he's our children's ministry coordinator. He and his wife, Erica, have been working really hard, uh, not only keeping things going here, but some preparation for kids ministry in the new building. So uh, if you want to talk to Matt about kids ministry, he would be thrilled to talk to you. And if you can't find Matt, feel free to come up to me and I'll get you connected to him. 
All right, that's it by way of announcements. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to John chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there because we'll be in that passage uh, for most of our time together. I would love for you to have it open in front of you, whether that's on an app or a, um, a physical paper Bible. If you don't have a Bible, no sweat. We got you covered. Uh, the verses that I'm about to read will be on the screen and you can follow along there as well. Let's look at John chapter 7. Our verses for today are 25 through 36. It says in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. Verse 28, as he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 35, and then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at your word and as we contemplate the truth that came from your mouth some 2,000 years ago, and as we look at these inspired words written down by John the evangelist so that we might know you and believe in you for salvation and eternal life, God, I pray that you would do that very thing this morning. Give life to our desperate souls. Give life to those who cannot survive one moment before you without a Savior. Give life to those who have been drawn away from you by sin, that we might know you, and that we might, as, as Greg mentioned earlier, by your blood and by your sacrifice, come boldly before you knowing that you love us, knowing that you have created us for this reason. Speak to us as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through the Gospel of John here. And, um, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten through about six and a half chapters now. Our goal by, by summer is to get most of the way through chapter 11. That's kind of the breaking point in the Gospel of John. Believe it or not, those first 11 chapters are the first couple years of Jesus's ministry. And the second half, about another 10 or 11 chapters, is actually just the last week of Jesus's ministry. That's the way John organized his gospel. He's got, he's got about half of it devoted to a couple of years of ministry. And then the second half devoted to just those last few days, those very important days of Jesus's life and his ministry on earth. He's of course making his case for who Jesus is. John has come to a very specific conclusion 
about who this Jesus of Nazareth is. He has come to this, he has come to the conclusion that he is the son of God, the Messiah, this comes from the end of his book, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Those are the things that he's concluded about Jesus. He's the Messiah. That's the one that the Jews were waiting for, that the Old Testament had prophesied about, that that the Jews had been living in anticipation and longing to see and to meet, that he's the son of God, meaning he's not one of us, that he has, as Jesus says so many times in this gospel, been sent from the father, that he existed before his life on earth, and that he came from the father, sent by him. And that by believing in him, that's one of the major themes of the gospel of John, that by believing in him, we might have eternal life. That's an unbelievable message. And if that is true, that makes it the single most important message in all of human history. There is nothing that could be more important. There is nothing that could be more meaningful than this, what we now call the gospel of Jesus, which simply means the good news about Jesus. And so we evaluate John's claims as he makes them. He brings forth witnesses. He brings forth um, evidence of miraculous things, the seven signs in the book of John, the miraculous things that Jesus did throughout his ministry. And he says those are just a small fraction of the things that Jesus did to prove who he was. And so he's taking us through his case. He's making his case for who Jesus is. And we come to this passage in John chapter 7. And I just want to make three simple observations here this morning. The first is this. It's most common to know about Jesus, but not believe in Jesus. It's most common to know about Jesus, but not believe in Jesus. Of course, if you have the handout and you're following along, you want to fill in the blanks, go ahead and fill those in. What I mean is there, we need to make a distinction between believing in Jesus that leads to salvation, if that's the message of John's gospel, that it leads to eternal life, we need to make a distinction between that kind of belief and the belief that is most common today, which is actually really just knowing about Jesus. There is a significant difference between those two things. And yet, most people confuse knowing about Jesus with believing in Jesus. That's a fatal, eternal mistake to make. The stakes could not be any higher than when it comes to what you believe about Jesus and whether or not you truly believe in him. You see, the word that occurs throughout the Gospel of John in the original language uh, for believe has a strong implication of trust and faith. We sometimes think of believing as just mere mental assent. I agree to that statement. I, I believe that's likely true. Uh, um, you know, th- th- there are many things that we've never laid, never laid eyes on in this world, but, but we've been told about them and we might believe that. Yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 
probably 80 degrees in Florida right now. I hate to bring that up, but it's probably 80 degrees and sunny in Florida right now. I believe that, but I'm not there to say for sure. And there's a difference between simply believing in something. They're sending all these pictures and audio and stuff from Mars. I don't know what to think about that. They're telling us this thing's like 200 million miles away and somehow we're getting like live video feed and stuff like that. I can't even figure out how Wi-Fi works in my home. I don't know what's going on with this crazy thing. I, I don't know what to think, okay? It, it, seems, it seems a little out there, but there's, there's things that, so I believe them. Am I gonna stake my eternal salvation on that? I don't know. There's a, you see, there's a difference between be, sort of that belief that's mere mental assent. Yeah, I'll go along with that. I use this phrase all the time. I have a terrible memory. People, especially in my family, say things to me all the time. Remember when, or you said this, or say, and I'll say, I don't remember, but I believe you. And I mean it. I mean it. When somebody who I trust is saying you did or you said, I'll say, I don't remember. I honestly don't remember, but I do believe you. But let's not confuse this sort of casual belief with what it means to believe in Jesus. Because I think what a lot of people think is belief in Jesus is really just knowing about Jesus. You've heard the story. You don't necessarily disagree with it, but have you placed your trust in him? Have you put your faith in him? Are you willing to say, Jesus is my only hope? This is what we're seeing in the gospel of John, this distinction, this difference between the crowd. John is constantly pointing us to the, the, the feeble faith of the crowd who one minute they believe in Jesus and the next minute they're turning their back and they're going away. And then there's the disciples who John wants us to see. They're sticking with him. Remember that story back in John chapter 6 where Jesus fed the 5,000 from, from the loaves and the fish that that little boy brought. And, and the, the crowd had faith. They believed they believed in Jesus, and then the next day they didn't. The next day they said, this is too hard, and they left. And after they left, who was still there? The disciples. Remember, Jesus looked at them and said, are you going to go away too? And they said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It's, this, it's a belief that stays it's a belief that keeps you in place when things are difficult. So let's look at this a little bit. Let's, let's look at our passage. I want to unpack some things here. I'm going to go back to the beginning of verse 25, where it said, Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. So they're wrestling with this idea, who is this Jesus? They're, on one hand, they, they want to kill him, yet here he is. He's right in front of us. Nobody's trying to do anything to him. Could it be that they really know, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, could it be that they really know he's the Messiah? 
But wait a minute, we know where this guy is from. And the teaching that we've been receiving tells us that when the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. So they're back and forth. Who is this Jesus? Some, some are, are tempted to believe. Others are saying, yeah, but we know where he's from. And, and they're going back and forth and wrestling. Verse 28 says, as he was teaching in the temple... Jesus cried out, that's a phrase that occurs in John, mean, meaning he, he spoke it publicly for all to hear. You know me, and you know where I'm from, yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus, again, pointing back to where he comes from, back to his relationship with the Father, he is from the Father. The Father has sent him. The reason they can't know him is because they don't know the Father. But they're almost there. They're so close. They're so close to believing in Jesus. They're so close to really getting it. I think one of John's motives in his gospel, and, and right, because this is, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time written by a human author who had, who had a reason to sit down and write this book. Why did John write this gospel? Why did he write the things that he wrote down? Uh, and it, it, what, what did the Holy Spirit inspire him to do? I think one of his motives is that he was seeking to pierce the hearts of those who are on the fence. By constantly drawing this distinction between the faith of the crowd, which comes and goes, and the faith of the disciples, which stays, and Jesus constantly calling people to believe in him, and that by believing they'll have eternal life, I think that's one of his motives, is he wants to speak to those who are on the fence. He wants to speak to those who maybe know about him, but haven't trusted in him. And he wants to push them over the line. And maybe, maybe in that audience that John intended is you today. Maybe you're here and you're just kind of on the fence about Jesus. You, yeah, you believe. Yeah, you, you don't disagree. Yeah, you, you don't have any reason to, to push back on this message of the gospel. But have you believed have you put your trust in him? Have you turned your life over to him? Have you gone that far? That could be the difference between e eternal punishment and eternal life. That could be the difference between living in the reason and the purpose that you were created for and totally missing it. Maybe you're almost there, but it's time to believe. It's time to trust. Don't be content to just know about Jesus. Rather, believe in Jesus. Have faith in him and gain eternal life. There are some shocking things that are said in the New Testament when it comes to believing in Jesus. The first is this, and these won't be on the screen. I apologize. I added these later, uh, but you can just listen as I, as I read along. You, you probably won't even have time to turn there because I'm going to go quickly. But the one is in James chapter 2, verse 19. James says something shocking when it comes to this idea of believing in Jesus. He says, you believe that God is one, good, you might think he's patting you on the back. 
So you believe something true about Jesus, or you believe something true about, you have, you have the correct theological idea. Good. Even the demons believe, he says. So you've come as far as the demons, who without a doubt are not saved. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. It's, it's highly likely that there are demons who are, who are angels who have rebelled against God and who will spend eternity separated from him. They are the reason for which God created hell. It's highly likely that there will be demons in hell for eternity who have better theology than you and I. It's not enough to know what is true. You must believe, you must trust, you must place your faith in those things. You believe that God is one, that's great. But guess what? Even the demons believe that. That won't do anything to save you. It may be an important part of the foundation which will lead to your salvation, but just knowing the right things isn't enough. You must trust in him. Then Jesus says these shocking words, which I think have made many people uncomfortable, which of course was his intention over the past 2,000 years. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, not everyone who says, he's speaking about the final judgment, the day in which he'll separate people into two categories. Those who are going to eternal life and salvation and those who are going to eternal separation and damnation. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If there is anything more frightening than the idea of hearing those words from the mouth of Jesus, I don't know what it is. To know that you were almost there. To know that you did so many of the right things. Isn't that what we see here? People who did the right things. They even called him Lord. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Jesus says, I never knew you. So it's not enough just to know the right things theologically. It's not even enough to, to do the right things physically, to go through the motions. These are folks who were, were participating. They weren't just spectators. They, they weren't just sitting back and, and pretending to be a part of the group. They were involved. They were active. And Jesus makes it clear that it really comes down to this one thing. What is your response to him? Is it belief? Is it trust? Is it faith? Do you know him, not just about him, but do you know him? It's most common to know about Jesus, but not believe in Jesus. And that is a frightening place to be. It's, it's the reality of those who are almost there. Okay, let's keep going. Yet, 
This is the next thing on the handout. Many do believe in him. It's not, all, it's not just as if everybody stays in that place of almost there. Yet many do believe in him. We're going to see that in our passage. We're going to see that all throughout the gospel of John. We'll see that in scripture. We see that today. Yet many do believe in him. And this always brings out opposition. There's a very interesting thing that happens when people do believe in Jesus. It, it, it awakens an opposition that previously wasn't there. I don't know about you, but when I came to, to faith in Christ, when I began to follow Jesus, it brought opposition in relationships that there wasn't opposition before. It's a divisive thing to trust in Jesus. We, I mean, it's, it's, it was often unthinkable um, to me as a teenager. I came to Christ when I was about 15 years old. And before that, I'd been living in sin. And I'd, I'd been doing a lot of things that were causing problems in my life and in my family and stuff. And so when I came to Jesus, I was like, everybody's going to be happy. I'm not doing those things anymore that are causing problems. And what I found was not everybody was happy that I was following Jesus. And then I read the Bible and I'm like, oh, that's what always happens. The decision to truly follow Christ always brings about opposition. And I, and I can think of specific conversations and specific times in those early days of my faith and my journey with Jesus where people were just against me for no reason other than I had begin to, begun to follow Jesus. I remember a friend of mine uh, coming up to me and uh, he, he said something like, so you worship Jesus, huh? And I was like, yeah, I'm a little nervous because I knew. I'm like, where's this going? He's like, well, I worship Satan. And I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's still a friend. I, I know him. I know him still today. And I'll tell you what, he wasn't he wasn't joking. <laughs> he's, he lives a dark life. It's a dark life. Another friend of mine, when he found out. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I was, um, I wanted to go into ministry and I was, you know, making that now and exploring that and stuff. And another friend of mine came up to me and said, so you're going to be a pastor, huh? And I'm like, you know, having flashbacks to that Satan conversation. I'm like, this isn't, this isn't going to go well. He's like, my pastor's Pastor Mary Jane. And he was like so proud of himself for this clever little thing that he came up with. And, 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 you know, those are just kind of, Silly examples, I guess, but there were other things, other relationships that, man, just got hard, just got tough. Believing in Jesus brought opposition. We see that here in our passage. Let's look at verse 30 together. <clears throat> and the opposition here is going to be towards Jesus, but I want to draw the connection back to us through some things that Jesus says later. It says, then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I'll just pause there for a second before we read the rest of that passage. There's this concept in, in the Gospel of John of Jesus' hour. Those first 11 and a half chapters that I mentioned earlier, his hour had not yet come. Excuse me. <clears throat> his hour had not yet come. And so there's, there's plotting and there's, there's opposition and there's people that are, are wanting to do something about Jesus who's causing all this commotion, but his hour had not yet come. 
And so none of that really takes root. And about halfway through John chapter 11, things change. His hour has arrived. And that's the second half of the book of John, which we'll look at in the fall. It's his hour. It's that week of Jesus's life where, the, where his, what, we, what we refer to as his passion, whereas he pours out his life as an offering for our sins and to, to bring our salvation. So here we are, though, yet his hour has not yet come. Verse 31, however, many from the crowd believed in him. So people are believing when the Messiah comes, he won't perform. This is what they said. I'm sorry. When the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done. Will he? So they're convinced by the signs. They're like, Jesus is doing all these miraculous things, which is why John records the signs in his gospel. They're, they're convincing evidence. And they were convinced by this. When the Messiah comes, if this isn't him, what's it going to look like when the Messiah comes? Like We can't imagine somebody doing more signs than this. Jesus is doing all these miraculous things. He must be the Messiah. And whether or not that faith is, or that belief is saving belief, we don't really know. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him. So the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. So in verse 30, there's an attempt to seize him that fails because his hour had not yet come. And we're not told who that was. Um, well, I'm not, I guess I'm not convinced of who that was. Maybe, maybe others have an answer to that. In verse 30, try to seize him. But now we have the chief priests and the Pharisees. So the, these guys have authority. They're religious leaders, and they've sent servants to arrest him, most likely the temple guard. And so they're ramping up their efforts. This is getting serious. They're going to arrest him. They're going to put him on trial. And if they can convict him, they're going to execute him. All right. So yet many do believe in him, and this always brings out opposition. So I face this opposition. Now I'm reading the scriptures, and I'm like, okay, that's normal. Jesus is facing opposition, but how does that connect to us? Well, Jesus says a couple of things that are going to be helpful. Again, scriptures that I added late won't be on the screen. Uh, just listen as I read. You can jot this down if you want to look it up later. Matthew chapter 10 is where I'm going to go. Verse 32 to 39. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household." Verse 37, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. When I came to faith in Christ, my relationship with my dad was not good. When I came to faith in Christ, thinking that it might get better, it got worse. And um, since then, my, my dad has come to faith in Christ, and we have a totally different relationship. Jesus totally just turned our relationship around, as well as his relationship with the rest of my family. Um, 
But when Jesus says, I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, that's, that's real talk. Jesus did not, let me say this, believing in Jesus isn't necessarily going to make everything better in your life. There's some things that it's going to make worse. And Jesus makes very clear, if you are not willing to accept that, then you are not worthy of him. That's why he says to count the cost before, before coming to him. Because sometimes the cost might mean that you, you, you give up some things in life that are very important and valuable to you. But you can't, cannot love those things and you cannot love those relationships more than you love Jesus. That's a hard thing to hear. It's an important thing to know. I've seen many people begin to follow Jesus and then fall away or turn back because it was causing friction with somebody close to them. And it's not like they, it's not like they sat down and said, man, I love Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not willing to do that at the expense of this. It's, I don't, I, it's not always just this conscious thought process that if I, if I, where they've really thought it through and they've come to the decision that Jesus just isn't worth as much to me as this relationship is. But at the end of the day, that's what it amounts to, isn't it? And whether you realize it's happening or not, so many people fall away because the cost in terms of a relationship with somebody else is too high. And Jesus makes clear that that won't do. We can't love somebody else more than we love Jesus. Which begs the question of why is Jesus like that? Was he jealous? Is he, is he insecure? And of course, none of those things are true. He just made us in a certain way that until we treasure him, until we love him and value him above everything else, we won't live. We won't be satisfied. We won't experience the life that he came to give us, the life that he created us to experience. He knows our souls better than we do. And he wants us to be alive. He wants us to have eternal life. He knows that if we put other things before him, we won't make it across the finish line. He loves us too much to not speak the truth. Then he says later on in, in John chapter 15, we'll see this when we get to the second half of, of John's gospel later, but I want to read it now. He said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Okay, so I'm just trying to reiterate this point that Jesus lets us know. Hey, he faced opposition. We should expect the same. When we believe in him, this always brings out opposition. And if you're like, well, I've believed in him and I'm not facing opposition for it, then, then just enjoy the smooth road while it lasts because it's not going to last forever. You don't have to go looking for trouble to somehow validate your faith. Things will get hard. Jesus warned us that that was going to happen. Isn't it? I mean, that's on one hand, that's not comforting, but on the other hand, that is. At least Jesus knew. At least Jesus warned us and he prepared us. And when we get to that point, we're like, man, this is getting kind of costly. We're like, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's how we know that it's real. 
Okay, one more thing I want to go over. Just one more observation from this passage. Jesus warns those who don't believe that their time to decide is limited. All right, so I started with it's common to know about Jesus but not believe in Jesus. And then we just spent a few minutes on this idea that many do believe in him and this brings out opposition. But now I want to end with this important point that Jesus uh, makes in this passage or that we, can, that we can derive from this passage. That those who don't believe have a limited time to decide. This is just one of the, the most important things to understand about life and faith and your response to Jesus that you don't have forever to make up your mind. That your time to decide is limited and you really don't know how limited it might be. Jesus said to them, verse 33, I am only with you for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me. This is what he says to those who have not yet believed in him. You will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That got their attention. They were shook by this. We know that from the next verse. It says, then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? So he's, he's, in, um, he's in the land of Israel proper, which is a, a fairly small area of land. It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. Um, and, and that's where the that's where the Jews worshipped and the, Jew, the Jews had political authority and stuff was in this sort of Israel proper. But there were Jews that lived all outside of that area throughout the Roman Empire and, and they had been dispersed. If you, if you know a little bit of Old Testament history, a few hundred years before Jesus came, the Jewish people were actually conquered and they were taken, when they were conquered, they were taken to other countries and other parts of that region and they stayed there. The, most of them, the majority of them stayed there. So there are Jews all over the place. They're, they're called the diaspora, those who are dispersed among that region. And so that's what they're alluding to. Is he going to go to those Jews? Right now he's teaching the Jews here in Israel. Does he plan to leave Israel and go teach those Jewish people and to teach the Greeks that live out there? That's the best they can come up with. He said, you'll look for me and you won't find me. What does he mean by this? Verse 36, what is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus has this incredible way of saying something that just sits with his audience. He makes a statement and you're like, I don't know exactly what that means. And you start chewing on it and you realize there's a lot of, that means it might mean a lot of things, but you need to keep thinking about it and wrestling with it. He's a master at that. He says things that kind of pierce the heart, get your attention, and then he just lets you sit with them. He doesn't answer their question. He doesn't tell them. Like, what kind of teacher is this? He just asks a question and he walks away. I think it would be good for us to let that statement sit with us. You will look for me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. There's a truth to that statement that wasn't just appropriate for those Jews listening 2,000 years ago. There might be some in this room who haven't yet made that decision to believe in and to trust in, to really give your life to Jesus. 
that there could come a day when you'll look for him and you won't find him. And where he is, you cannot go. Let that sit with you this week. Think about that. Even if you're sure you know the answer, think about that. And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for others? Because James chapter 4, verse 13 tells us, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You do not know, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. It's an unfortunate reality that life here on earth really is just a vapor. And unfortunately, we don't always know when that vapor is going to disappear. We might think we know. We might think we have a good plan. That's what was happening here in James chapter 4. There's people who were confident in what tomorrow was going to bring. They were confident in what they were going to do with the rest of their lives. And James says, be careful. You don't know. So as you think about those words of Jesus, you will look for me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Are you certain? Are you certain that you will be with Jesus? Or are you almost there? Don't be content to be almost there. Have Jesus. Have life. Have salvation. Have your sins forgiven by believing in him with everything that you have, by trusting in him with everything you are, and by following him with every ounce of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, if there's anyone here today who's who's almost there, There may be, they may be know a lot about you. And they don't necessarily disagree. But it hasn't changed their life. It hasn't caused what, what you talk about in, in, in this Gospel of John is new birth, being born again. Then God, I pray that you'd bring them over the line right now. Help them to trust in you. And for those of you in this room who are saying, or maybe saying that's you, but I'm ready. I'm ready to believe. I know my life won't last forever. I don't, I don't know how much time I have left. And, and even if I have a million years, today is the day when I want to begin following Jesus. Would you just call out to him? Say, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life and make me new. Cause me to be born again. And cause me to live for you now and in eternity. Thank you for what you did by dying on the cross for my sins. Make that count for my salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.